You can open up your copy of the Bible uh, to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're continuing to make our way through this wonderful book of the Bible. Uh, we will finish it eventually, uh, but there's a lot in it, and so we're uh, slowing down for parts and speeding up for others. But we'll be at the end of chapter 9 of Hebrews this morning. Uh, but I want to say uh, thank you uh, once again for your ongoing generosity as individuals and as a collective church of your uh, giving into the general fund of our church. Uh, your giving enables ministry here around our community, but also by extension to people like Steve uh, that I mentioned who are able to, uh, some are goers to the nations and some are workers with agencies and organizations that are seeking to help aid the goers. And so sometimes they are out of sight of us, uh, but may they not be out of heart and may we have eyes to see the ways we're even enabling their ministries as we give into a common fund here as a church. But if you'd like to make donations on Sunday mornings, uh, you can do that in the offering boxes at the back or you can always give online at the church website really easily as well. But thank you for your generosity and giving from what God has entrusted to you uh, to further his mission as we try to reach the generations among us and the nations uh, in the world. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 23 here in just a few moments. But wanted to, to uh, because of what's going to be in this text, draw attention to a phrase we sometimes use in our society. We, when we say that we are going to make an appearance somewhere, when we use those terms, I'm going to make an appearance uh, if you're like me, we usually use that to try to indicate the insignificance of us showing up somewhere. Like uh, sometimes when I would be overseeing youth ministry, for example, when it was graduation season, there'd be one Saturday there were tons of open houses and I would get invited to all sorts of them and I would say something often to them, well, I, will, I think I can make an appearance. Not meaning like I'm important and people are gonna pay attention when I'm there, but I just meant, hey, I'm gonna try to be there, but it might be short. Uh, and if we're honest, I, this is true of me, I think it's probably true of all of us in the room. If we're honest, when we show up somewhere, People really don't care all that much. Uh, like when, when I go to the grocery stores and I'm like, oh, everybody turns and oh, Mark is here now. Everything's well. The people don't roll out red carpets for us. When we make appearances, it is not that big of a deal. Uh, anonymity has its advantages where people don't know us and don't care where we come or go. When we appear places, it doesn't really move the needle at all about almost anything. Uh, but there are some people in the world uh, whose appearances, places do move the needle, that people do pay attention when they show up somewhere. There's uh, rulers, kings, queens, there's celebrities, there's athletes, there's people who are kind of in the public sphere. When they show up somewhere, when they make make an appearance, uh, paparazzi comes out, photographers snap pictures of them, uh, articles are written, uh, things, news spreads about them making appearances, and their appearance does move the needle sometimes. By them just showing up to something, they add credibility to it, they add attention to it. Uh, and I mention all these ideas of us appearing, making an appearance, because in this text today, we're going to see that there's going to be three appearances of Jesus mentioned. Three places or times that he makes an appearance uh, in this text in the past, where he appears presently, and where he will appear in the future. And Jesus' appearings, unlike ours, are infinitely significant. Ours are insignificant, typically. His, when he appears, his appearances are 
infinitely significant. And so when we hear of him making an appearance, we should pay attention. Our eyes should be drawn to him. Uh, Our ears should perk up when we hear about Jesus making an appearance. And so in a moment, I'm going to read this last paragraph of Hebrews chapter 9. But just to quick frame this text and where we are in the Bible and in this book, this book of Hebrews was written to an early group of Jewish Christians. Uh, Thus the name of the book. Uh, They had come to faith in Jesus. They had heard about this Messiah that was crucified and raised from the dead. They put their faith in him, but now they're being tempted as opposition comes, which in the next chapter we're going to hear more explicitly about. They're tempted to go back to the old covenant and those old ways with priests and sacrifice and the temple. They're tempted to go back. And the author again and again has been calling them to not go back. Uh, We've seen that dozens of times by now. Uh, But he's going to keep telling them, don't turn back. Press on in faith in Jesus. And he makes different arguments to try to compel them toward that. What he's been doing most recently, picking up about the the text right before we're going to be, He's been describing, comparing the old covenant and the new covenant and saying the new covenant is better uh, for all sorts of reasons. But one reason that the new covenant is better is because the old covenant, and it, it had this tabernacle, this tent where God would meet with his people. And he has said that those were like a shadow and a copy of heavenly realities that Jesus has actually gained us access to, that Jesus has actually entered into himself. And so we're going to see, as I read this paragraph, he's going to pick up that theme again of comparing the earthly tabernacle, tent, the earthly priests, and the heavenly places. And he's, you're going to see him contrasting these again saying Jesus has gotten us into the better place. He's gotten us into the spiritual realm with God himself. And so I'm going to read this passage for us. I'm going to start at verse 23 of chapter 9. I'm going to read through verse 28. And you're going to note at least in the ESV, uh, your English translations may not have quite as many, but there's going to be three times you hear the word appear or appearing. Uh, Sometimes when we read with our younger kids, uh, they'll ask me, what's a word I can listen for? And then they raise their hand when they hear that word read. So if there's young kids that want to listen for the word appear, if you want to raise your hand, you can. Uh, there, it'll be in there three times if you listen closely. And so I'm going to read this, and then we're going to walk back and see those three appearings of Jesus and why they're significant to us, why we should pay attention when his appearance is mentioned. So the author of the, he- of the book of Hebrews continued under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. 
We're going to uh, look at these three appearances, these three appearings of Jesus today, um, but we're going to take them in the order the author mentions them. They're not chronological. Uh, we're gonna, there's a, there is a past appearing, a present appearing, and a future appearing, but he addresses them in a different order. He talks about Jesus' present appearance first, and then he goes back and talks about his past appearance, and then he ends by talking about his future appearance. So that's the order we're going to go in, his present, past, future, these appearances of Jesus. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to, and they'll each come in two verse chunks. There's six verses. Each, there's, two, there's three sets of two verses, uh, each that talk about an appearing. So the first one that the author addresses in this paragraph is the present appearing of Jesus. Where is he appearing presently? What is he doing presently? And so verse 23, we kind of picked it up in the middle of an argument uh, that he's making, but you can see that he continued this contrast between the earthly things and the heavenly things, right? He's been talking about that. He's continuing to talk about it. He references right out of the gate in this paragraph how there are these copies of the heavenly things. That would have been the tabernacle and even the priests that would go into that tabernacle. Uh, there were these copies of the heavenly things and then there were the what he calls the heavenly things themselves. And he was saying if those earthly things, the copies had to be purified with sacrifice and blood, he's saying in verse 23 that the heavenly things also need, needed purified, which is a fascinating statement. I don't have time to dive into the depths of that, but uh, for him to say that those heavenly realities needed purification could feel kind of confusing. How could it be? It, it makes sense that the earthly tabernacle needs purifying. How could it be that the heavens, heaven itself needs purifying? I don't think what he's trying to say is that heaven was corrupted, uh, that there was uh, filth, there was unrighteousness there. That's where God dwells with his angels who have not fallen. Uh, But I think what he's trying to do is just pick up on the the imagery of the earthly uh, rituals and practices of those sacrifices, the need for purification there, and then picturing that if we as sinners are to ever enter into that place, if we're to go as sinful people into the presence of God, purification needs to take place in some capacity, most centrally within us. But there has to be some sacrifice made if we're to enter into the presence of God. And so for sin, if sinful priests had to offer sacrifice to be allowed into the tent, then like for sinners like us to enter into heaven itself, sacrifice, a better sacrifice was needed, right? That's what he's saying in verse 23. And so the, then he talks in verse 24 about this first appearance of Jesus that we see in the text. And he says that in verse 24, Christ has not just entered into an earthly tent, uh, a tabernacle or a temple, but he says Christ has entered into heaven itself. That he's not just entered into some shadow, earthly copy, but he has entered into heaven itself. And we've seen this again and again, so I don't need to belabor it. But this is wonderfully good news for us. uh, That Jesus, having died for us, having been raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he is presently. Uh, He is with God the Father in heaven right now. And I want you to imagine just for a second that scene. I don't know what it looked like. I I have a hard time conceptualizing heaven visually. But when when God the Son, who had created heaven, he had left it to become a human being. He had suffered and died. He had been raised from the dead. I want you to imagine that scene when he finally returned. 
Like when the resurrected Jesus ascended and returned to the right hand of God the Father. You want to talk about an appearance, like a a showing up where people took note and paid attention. That would have been it. Uh, Where the angels who had been created by Jesus and who were perplexed by him entering into the human race, when they see this resurrected Jesus ascend back to the right hand of God the Father, that was an appearance. But it wasn't just once that he appeared there in heaven. What the author says here in this text is that he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. This ongoing appearing before God the Father. And he says that Jesus appears there on our behalf. End of verse 24. That is good news for us. That Jesus didn't just show back up into heaven just to enjoy it himself and just to receive praise and worship, but he returned there. He appears there. He makes this appearance before the Father on our behalf. He has us on his mind. He has us on his heart. He is advocating for us, having died for us. And the priests in the Old Covenant, they, when they entered into the tabernacle, when they entered into that copy, that, that shadow of the heavenly realities, they were doing so not just on their own as an individual, right? They were doing so on behalf of the nation. They were doing so on behalf of all the people who stood outside. It wasn't just them as an individual going to God, but they went on the behalf of the nation. And the same is true of us, that Christ has entered into heaven. He has entered into the heavenly realities on our behalf, uh, not just for his own enjoyment, but he's entered in for us. And we, we know this idea experientially of somebody doing something or going somewhere on our behalf, making an appearance on our behalf. Sometimes in, in legal situations, there will be an attorney who appears before a judge on our behalf. And maybe we're there with them, uh, but they are, are speaking for us. They're advocating for us. Or ideally, in our form of government, uh, we have elected officials who, for example, go to Washington, D.C. to represent us there. Right? So they go on our behalf because all of us cannot. They go on our behalf. They are there on our behalf. And they ideally then are to carry us on their mind, carry us on their heart as they're making decisions, as they're advocating for certain things. And so Christ has entered into heaven, the resurrected Jesus, on our behalf. On behalf of sinful, small people like me and you, he has entered on our behalf as a word of application, I'm going to try to give an application from each of these appearings of Jesus. As you think about this appearing, the present appearing of Jesus before God the Father, one way that I would want you to apply this in your life and that I want to, is I would say this way, is to employ Christ's proximity. Like actually make use of it. I don't think we do this enough. I think we know conceptually Jesus is with God, but we don't think of the relevance that it has for us of our ability to fellowship with God, to, to commune with him, to, to speak to him, to hear from him. And when you have an in somewhere, like when you have a person on the inside of something or someplace, don't you typically try to use that? Uh, I mean, you can do that in bad ways. You could exploit it. You could try to take advantage, find loopholes. But if you have a legitimate in somewhere with an important person or an important group of people, it is not bad or wrong to try to use that, to, to employ that, to make use of their proximity with that person. Their proximity there can actually gain you opportunity, can gain you experiences that you never would have had. Um, uh, I, I was thinking of this and just a story that came to mind. 
when I was in high school. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Indianapolis, and uh, Mitch Daniels, who eventually became the governor of Indiana, he actually lived, believe it or not, like in my school district, and his daughters were my age, and so one of them was in my grade at my school, and this is true uh, evidence of what a nerd I am. I was part of a competitive government team when I was in high school where we would study the Constitution and do these fake panels and things like that. And the team that I was on from school, we won for the whole state of Indiana, which there's not tons of competition, so don't be too impressed. Uh, but we won for the state of Indiana, and we got to go on a trip to a national competition to Washington, D.C. And it was awesome. It was really neat for me as a high school student. But Mitch Daniels, this is before he was ever governor of Indiana, at that time, uh, George Bush was president, uh, and he was operating, I forget what his title was, but as uh, director of finance, or helping craft the budget, uh, the national budget for George Bush at the time, and his daughters go to our school. Like, they're friends with some of us that are part of this team. And when we got to go to Washington, D.C. that spring, he, because of his proximity to George Bush, current sitting president, let 16, 17-year-old high schoolers like us come on, do a tour, not just of the White House, which you usually were allowed to do, but of this building next to it called the Executive Building of the White House, which is where all sorts of super famous, amazing things, think like fireside chats were recorded in this room we got to go and stuff like that, that we got to see all these things that we had no right as these kids from flyover territory, Indiana, like uh, don't even know what we're getting into. To. We had no right to go see these things, but because of Mitch Daniels and his standing with the president, we were allowed to go into these places. We were allowed to see things that most other people never get to see, and I wish I would have really soaked it in, but I use that as an example of someone who had favor with the person who was in charge and get, allowed us as people who knew him, who he was there uh, and knew us, he, his proximity to the present allowed us to see and experience things that we never would have on our own. And think of that just blown out infinitely more on an infinitely grander scale. We have God the Son who's been crucified and raised for us, who has the full approval and delight of God the Father. And he has gone to be with the Heavenly Father but he has done it on our behalf. And because he has the favor of God, because he has the, the proximity to God the Father, we reap a whole host of rewards from that. We get to experience all sorts of things that we have no right to experience that left to ourselves. Uh, we get to, to know the forgiveness of God the Father. We get to know the fellowship of his Holy Spirit. We get to, to commune with him. And I, I just want to encourage you to contemplate what a sweet privilege you have individually and that we have collectively to actually have an advocate, like the Apostle John says, an advocate with the Father right now. That, so think about that when you are tempted to forsake praying. You have the ear of God the Father, not because you are wonderful, but because Christ is there with him and he is there on your behalf. Let that fuel and motivate your prayers to him. Commune with God in worship, both privately and publicly. I think we, we forget what a privilege it is that you don't need John to lead you into the presence of God. You don't need Ben Shaw, who's going to be here in a few months, to lead you into the presence of God. You surely do not need me to bring you into the presence of God. You need Jesus to bring you into the presence of God. And if you're united with him by faith, you are in the presence of God currently. 
Like he wants to hear from you. He, and you should want to hear from him to, to enjoy fellowship with him. Uh, we, I think we ought to more so than we do employ Christ's proximity. Like actually utilize it. Take advantage of it in a righteous way to commune with God, to speak to him, to remember the privilege that we have to be his children. So that's Jesus' present appearing. That's what he mentions first. But in the middle chunk of two verses in this text, he talks about uh, Jesus' first appearing. So he goes back to the past when Jesus appeared the first time, right? So if you look at verses 25 and 26, we'll see Jesus' first appearing. And so the authors continue to contrast earthly realities and heavenly realities. And he's continuing this argument that Jesus' ministry is not like the ministry of Levitical priests. It's a better ministry. And so uh, the earthly, I think it's ironic he uses the word repeatedly twice in these verses. Uh, he repeats the word repeatedly. So he says, verse 25, uh, that Jesus, is, he, did, he wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place again and again every year on that day of atonement. He says, verse 26, for he then would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And so those priests, every year on the day of atonement and what we call the fall, uh, they would have a priest go into the tabernacle and then eventually into the temple. And they would offer certain sacrifices, take them inside, uh, the blood of them. They would perform these rituals repeatedly again and again. But what the author is saying here is that Jesus' ministry is different. Jesus' ministry is better. Uh, he, he talks about then his appearing at the end of verse 26. He's been saying, hey, Jesus' ministry is different than these priests. But he articulates at the end of 26 how it's different in a significant way. He says, as it is, Jesus has appeared. There's that language. He has appeared once for all. Right? He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. What he's speaking about there is the, what we call the incarnation of Jesus. That, that God the Son actually became a flesh and blood human being like me and you. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And that is wonder of wonders that God became man. We celebrate that every Christmas, but we ought to remember it throughout the year. Uh, that God the Son became a human being once for all. And the timing of him doing so wasn't random. He, the author describes it as being at the end of the ages that Jesus was incarnated, that he, uh, that he came into human form at the end of the ages. And this is important to note. History revolves, all of human history revolves around this appearing of Jesus. Uh, that this arrival of God the Son onto our planet as a human being, all of human history culminates there, uh, both in what came before and then what follows after it. The timing was not random. And as an aside, the world knows this. Uh, we testify to the reality of this every time we write the date on the top of our homework, right? Or when we write a date on our check that we're writing. When you write 2023, Implied after that is A-D, which I don't know Latin, but it means Anno Domini or Domini, which means the year of our Lord. So in most cultures around the world, we call this year 2023, not for any random reason, but because we even date our calendar as a human race, most of us, on the arrival of Jesus onto this planet. Like his entrance into our world was the culmination of the ages 
But his appearance, the reason he came, the author tells us in 26, the reason he appeared once for all at the end of the ages, the reason he became a boy and grew into a man, he says, was to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is why he appeared. That is why he entered into the human race, was to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That does not mean Jesus didn't come for other reasons. There's more than that that Jesus came to do, right? Jesus did come to do other things. He did come to teach. He did come to set an example for the human race of what we are to be and how we are to live. But what this author is saying is that the foremost reason, the the primary reason Jesus came, that he appeared as a human being, was to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the world will want to, to still respect Jesus, that want us to, to think, well, he came to do all these other things. Let's pay more attention to those things, the things he taught, the example that he set, the, the mercy and compassion that he showed. But they will not want to talk about the cross. They will not want to talk about the bloody, brutal cross where Christ laid down his life for us. And I, I was reading through, as I often do, some Charles Spurgeon uh, sermons on this. And I came across this quote where he said this, speaking of the end of verse 26. He said, the great object of our Lord's coming here was not to live, but to die. He hath appeared not so much, listen carefully to this, he hath appeared not so much to subdue sin by his teaching as to put it away by the sacrifice of himself. The master purpose which dominated all that our Lord did was not to manifest goodness nor to perfect an example, but to put away sin by sacrifice. That which the moderns would thrust into the background, our Lord placed in the forefront. That is what Jesus came to do. Uh, He came to teach. He came to set example. He came to do these things. But foremost in his mind was to put away sin, the sin of people like me and you, by the sacrifice of himself. He came to put it away, to, if you want to use big words, to nullify it, to to remove it from us. And the only way for him to do that, the only way for him to put away sin, was the sacrifice of himself. There was no other pathway toward that end of having our sin be put away other than the sacrifice of Jesus And at the cross, that is precisely what took place uh, in this appearing of Jesus, was this sacrifice of himself. In verse 28, just to briefly jump ahead, it talks about how the sins were, uh, were borne by him, that he bore the sins of many, right? Uh, when he went to the cross, it, they, it had this image in the Day of Atonement and with a lot of the sacrifices of a priest putting his hand on an animal and symbolically transferring the sin of him and then of the people to that animal that would then be sacrificed or then would be sent out for the scapegoat. There was this transfer, this image of it, of sin from one person to another and then that animal suffering as a sacrifice. But at the cross of Jesus, what was going on was the sin of his people. The sin of people like me and like you were essentially like God the Father laying his hand on the head of Christ and transferring our sin to him, counting our sin to him, and then him being sacrificed to the point of death, suffering the wrath of God in our place for our sin. Not just to set an example for us of being willing to be mistreated and not strike back, but he took our sin upon himself so that it might be put away from us, that it might be removed from us. And he bore all the sin uh, of his people there at the cross. And it was a public display 
Those animals would be sacrificed publicly for people to see. They didn't do it in some private place. That transfer of sin, the symbolizing of it was done publicly. And so too at the cross, Jesus was publicly displayed as a criminal. And he was publicly punished, not just by Pilate and by those soldiers, but even by God the Father himself. So that sin might be put away from us. And my word of application for this past appearing, this first appearing of Jesus, would very simply be this, is to plead Christ's blood. That is what the author again and again is trying to tell these people to do and what the Spirit would tell us through this text is to plead the blood of Christ before God. There is no other plea that will work for you. There is no other effective sacrifice for you. There is no other way for your sin to be put away than by the sacrifice of Christ and placing your trust in him. In verse 27, we have a painful but sobering reminder to us and to each and every one of us in this room that that someday we all will die. Someday we all will face the judgment of God. And the reality, whether we want to face it or not, is that your sin will be punished. Like my sin will be punished one way or the other. Like our sin will either be punished and the punishment will be received by us at judgment day and into eternity. Or the alternative is that it was laid upon Christ at the cross and that he bore it. But there is no other, way, there is no other alternative. There is no middle way where God somehow just forgets our sin or he just chooses not to deal with it. He will either deal with us directly a judgment, or he will deal with us at the cross of Christ. And the only way that we can have our sin removed from us is to rest in what Jesus has already done for us. That is how sin is put away. Sin is not put away from us by getting a spiritual eraser and somehow scrubbing ourselves clean or by turning over a new leaf and just living a different life now. That is not how sin is put away. Sin remains if we try to do that. The only way sin is put away is by it being placed upon Christ and him suffering for us. And what we are called to do in response is to rest our soul upon that, to trust that that sacrifice was sufficient for me and to, to confess my sin to God and say, please forgive me, not because I'm good, but because Christ bore my sin for me, you know, that, that he bore it in my place. And if we come to God in that way, our sin will be set aside. It will be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the glories of the new covenant and what Jesus has done for us. And if you are a person in the room who has not yet put your trust in Christ, I want you to, to rid yourself of any idea that at the end of time uh, that, that you will somehow be able to just get by by good intentions or by well wishes, or by coming up with a good defense of yourself before God, or some clever way to articulate yourself, uh, that, or to rest upon your charm or your wit before God, or to rest upon God's mood on the day that you come before him. There is nothing for you to put your hope in other than the cross of Christ. That is where you can place your trust, is in what he has done for you. But for those in the room who've already, you've already pled the blood of Christ. Maybe long ago you, you came to faith in him. I want you to remember today, and I want to remind myself of a line from a song we sing sometimes, that Jesus now and ever is my plea. 
That, that it's not just that I needed my forgiveness for my, the sins of my youth or the sins of my pre-Christ days. I need forgiveness of my sins of this morning on Daylight Saving Times Day Sunday, right? I need forgiveness of my sins of tomorrow. I need those sins put away. You need those sins put away. The fact that we came to Christ long ago does not mean that we don't still need to plead the, his blood again and again and again. Your fellow Christians, your forgiveness from God, your access to God was bought for you at the cross of Christ. And may he forgive us. May he he change us when we slip into this mentality, forgetting that we owe him everything. And we just make him background of our life that maybe we pay attention to for an hour or two on Sundays and we just live the rest of our life as if he's not there or he doesn't exist. We owe our very (laughs) eternal fate to him and what he has done for us at the cross. May we live with him not in the background but in the foreground. May we ever plead his blood. The final appearance of Jesus that's mentioned in these last two verses is what I would call his second appearing. This will be verses 27 and 28. This is his future appearing uh, when he will someday appear again. And verse 27 and 28 are are interesting. They, They work together as an argument. Verse 27 he, he makes this simple observation that it is appointed for man and women uh, to die once, and then after that comes judgment. All he's trying to do with that sentence is state the obvious for us, that we as human beings die once, right? I know Todd died. Uh, last, we talked about that last Sunday, but Todd would tell you, he, as long as Jesus stays in heaven, he will die again in a fuller sense, Right? We, we, we do not, we are not reincarnated as human beings, right? We die once as human beings. And I, just as a, a point of application, the world will tell you all sorts of other things about the afterlife. It will paint all sorts of pictures for you of what will happen after death. But human beings, we die once. We come to this earth and live one mortal life, right? Reincarnation is an illusion and is a deception, It is not reality. We die and then we face God's judgment. This idea of post-death conversion or opportunity to convert is a lie and is a deception. Like when we die, we face the judgment of God. It's not like we get a second chance after death to hear the good news. We die and then we face judgment, right? Or naturalists or atheists in the world who will call you to believe that when we die, we just cease to exist. We just return to dust and that's it. Like close up shop, your existence is done. That is a denial of clear biblical teaching and even the teachings of Jesus himself. Every person in this room, hear me, you will never stop existing. You won't. Like you will die as long as Jesus stays in heaven. I will die, but you will not stop existing. Like you will exist in soul and then someday your body will be returned to you at the resurrection. But it is appointed for us to die once. We're we're not on the cycle of of being reincarnated or having these hopes after death. We die and then we face judgment. And the reason he says it in verse 27 is because he's just trying to make a simple point in in this section of the text that Jesus is fully human, right? And so he only would die once. 
He only could die once. He, he, as a human being, he wasn't going to be reincarnated and come in the days of Noah and die for them and then come in the days of Abraham and then die for all the people that had lived by then and then come at this stage and this stage and this stage and this stage. He came once because he was coming as a human being. Uh, and human beings live and die once. That is what human beings do. And so Christ's death was once and for all, right? So he, he came to die and suffer once for us on the cross and to make a sacrifice that would be sufficient for all his people of all time. But the author points out that he is going to return again. He came once to live a mortal life, but he, as the one who's been raised from the dead, is going to come back to this earth again. He says very simply in 28 that Christ will appear a second time. Christ will appear a second time. And as we get further toward the end of the book of Hebrews, the author more and more is going to point to the future. He's going to more and more point to the future hope of God's people. Not just describing what Jesus did in the past and how things relate to the old covenant, but he's going to point our attention more to the future and to the return of Jesus and to the better city that we get to be citizens of and the, the better life that we get to have in the resurrection. But here at the end of this paragraph, it's like he just strikes a note uh, that uh, draws our attention to this, that Jesus is going to come back, and later it's going to become chords, and it's going to be beautiful. But he strikes this single note here, that Christ will appear a second time, right? Someday, the resurrected Jesus is going to physically return from heaven to this earth. That is wild for us to believe. Like, if you say that with a straight face to people at your workplace, they may laugh you out of the room. But that is what the scriptures teach us. That is what Jesus himself says, that someday he is bodily going to return to this earth. He will appear a second time. And the New Testament is clear again and again about this, that when he returns to this earth, those who have died, all of humanity that precedes him, will be raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead. And all of humanity will be judged by him. Like when he returns, it's not just to kick it here on earth again with us. or to, It is to judge us. It, it is not to, to deal with sin. That's what he came to do the first time in dying as a sacrifice. But it's to, to create a new eternal earth and then to also judge those who are not part of his people. Right? He, the, the kids on Wednesday nights have been learning the Apostles' Creed. And one of the things stated in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And then the next line is, it's like old English, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That is what will happen when Jesus returns, that he is going to return from heaven and is going to be to judge the living and the dead. And that's why here, if, and you could easily miss it, in verse 28, there's this language of him coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, right? To save them means there's something they're needing saving from in that moment, right? Uh, that when he returns to earth, God's final judgment to his enemies, to those who have not trusted in Christ, is coming down upon them. Like their eternal fate is sealed at that point. His judgment is coming, but for those who are in Christ, those who are united to him by faith, Christ will be in the fullest, final sense, our savior from that very judgment of God that is coming down on other sinners like us. It will not come down upon us because it came down on Christ at the cross. 
So at this, for thinking of this second appearing, the, the point of application I want to make on this final point would be this. It's a very simple one derived from the very last words of this text. is to, to my fellow Christians, anticipate Christ's return. Like, look forward to it. Like, think about it. Contemplate it. Uh, meditate upon the reality of it. He says here that those who Jesus will save are those who are eagerly waiting for him. So why should we be eagerly awaiting him? What, what, why should we look forward to that? Why should we take time to contemplate that? I, I couldn't help but think about the scene, because he's alluding to it, of the tabernacle, and when that priest would go in with the blood of those sacrifices, going into the very presence of God, which people have died in the presence of God before. And I, I, I imagine when he would finally come back out, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, there's like a whole process, but... For some of them, he was their friend, right? He, he was the, their, their brother, maybe. And when they would see him come out of, from that tabernacle, because he had gone back where it's unseen, when they would see him come back out, imagine the relief that would come over them and the joy to see him actually emerge from that tabernacle. Think about that. And then imagine Jesus. If Jesus' entrance into heaven was glorious... Think about us when we're raised from the dead, or maybe we'll still be among those who are still living when Christ returns. Think about when Christ comes back out of heaven, right? And he comes not just on his own, but he comes bringing heaven with him, right? He, he comes bringing the heavenly realities. He comes bringing all of the angels and all the saints who have gone before, comes bringing uh, them with himself, yeah, it made me think of like when the, sometimes when I go on a trip, uh, now that we have children, I'll just uh, buy something simple, like from wherever I went, like a little magnet or a little gift or a small stuffed animal or something to bring to my kids uh, when I return because they didn't get to go on that trip. They didn't get to go into that place. And when I come home, I give them like a small token of where I went so they can think, oh man, that must be a neat place. Maybe I'd like to go there someday. When Jesus returns from heaven, he's not just going to be bringing some little small token of heaven back to show us, isn't this a great place? Like he is bringing heaven itself with him. Read the end of Revelation. It talks about him bringing down the heavenly city and, and merging with the creator in this new city and this new earth. Jesus is going to bring all of heaven and the heavenly realities with him when he comes back. That's why we should be eagerly awaiting I want you to think, how can you grow in your anticipation of Christ's return? If that's something you know you should do, how can you grow? First, I would say, we don't like to do this, but remember your mortality. Like, rid yourself of the illusion that you are going to live forever on this earth. You are not. I am not. Uh, none of us are. Uh, we must remember that we have a finite number of days. The Lord knows that, and for some in the room, it may be a small number left. For some, it may be we have decades and decades and decades of life left. But we have a limited number of days. We need something to look forward to post-death, right? Like, we can't just set our hope in all these things of this earth, all these experiences of this life, because those things will come and go, and they will become in the rearview mirror very quickly, and they will typically disappoint. But we must look forward to something beyond this life. And I, I would encourage you to contemplate, this is to kids, teenagers, grown-ups, like contemplate what you are exposing yourself to as far as what you read, what you listen to, the worldviews that are baked into those things. 
Because I, I, I fear that often we are listening to people, I think of television news outlets as a prime example of this, or podcasts, things like that. Sometimes we are listening to people. We are listening to voices and people who frame the world in certain ways for us that what we are anticipate, what we are eagerly anticipating is not the return of Jesus. We are eagerly anticipating some political outcome. We are eagerly anticipating someone getting put into this elected office or getting ousted from this or this thing being exposed. And we are setting our hopes and our ultimate desires on these things that do not matter in the end. Like we live with their small frame put around our life and around our world of what is important and what we should really care about. Then think about the people you're listening to, the music you're listening to, the news that you're watching, the books that you're reading. Think, what are they teaching you to long for? Like, what are they teaching you to eagerly anticipate? Truly think about that. Like, because they are trying to get you to anticipate something, to set your heart, your affection on something. And if it is something less than return of Jesus, you should start to filter it, at least place it down in priority of who, how you listen to them and how you let them stir up your heart. The things that they teach you to panic about or the things they teach you to gloat about. Like, think about those things. And then when you see those things exposed, set your heart on the return of Christ. That is the one thing that will take place and the thing that will change everything. <laughs> set your heart and your affections on that. And I would say in this, this anticipation of Christ's return, I think the clearest way you can grow in your anticipation of it, and I'll end with this, is to actually spend time engaging with Jesus now. That's how you grow in anticipation of him coming back, right? It should not surprise you if you have a lack, if you never fellowship with Jesus, you rarely think about him, it should not surprise you that you're not excited about him returning to earth, right? That doesn't compute. If you don't spend time with him now, you don't enjoy him now, why would you want him to come back? Like, why would you want him to return from heaven it is hard for us to get excited about the homecoming of people we don't know, right? Or the people we don't care about. And if you don't believe that, go to an airport sometime and stand in the concourse and watch all these people coming off their flight, returning home. You can watch hundreds and hundreds of people come by to their home. And there's going to be other people there who are excited to see them. But if they're people you don't know, you don't care. Like, you don't care. You're like, yay for you. I'm glad you're home. I'm happy they're happy. I don't care. Like, I wasn't anticipating you being here. I don't even know your name. I don't know what your voice sounds like. I don't, you are a stranger to me. And when strangers return, you don't care. But when your Savior returns, you should care. Like, you should anticipate that. You sh should long for that, right? Because when you're at that airport and someone comes home that, you ha that is your spouse or your child or your friend who you've been calling while they've been away or you've been thinking about while they're away, you've been sending them texts while they're away, but you haven't gotten to be with them, you are thrilled to see them, right? You've been, you got there hours early to, in case their flight somehow got early, arrived early, you're there to see them. You're eagerly anticipating them because you know them and you care about them and if we don't spend time with Christ we don't care about him we are not going to be eagerly awaiting him we're not going to be sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for him to return and I, I would know and to reinforce this what the very last word of this text is it says that he will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him 
I think a lot of times, if we're honest, when we think about the return of Jesus, what thrills us is not so much him, but what he's going to bring with him. That, that I'm going to be free from suffering. I'm going to be free from pain. I'm going to be free from mistreatment. I'm going to be free from all these things that have plagued me. Free from worry. Free from this. Free from that. And we don't think about what we're actually gaining of the person of Jesus himself. Like what he says we should be eagerly awaiting is Jesus himself. But not just what Jesus brings. And may that be true. Friends, Jesus never just makes an appearance like we do. Uh, when he shows up, when he appears, it matters infinitely, and the whole universe should take note, right? He appears in heaven if you are his. He appears in heaven for you right now before God the Father. So employ his proximity. And he appeared on earth long ago to suffer and die for sinners like us. And in light of that, we should plead his blood. And someday... It may be soon, it may be far out. Someday he will return to earth again to save those who are his and he's gonna be bringing heaven with them. And so we ought to anticipate his return. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm